and welcome to the latest edition of How Might We. So this week I'm speaking to Elvin Turner and he wants to talk about how might we innovate for realists. Elvin, if you'd like to introduce yourself to the audience, please. Sure. Well, thank you, Scott, for, for having me on. It's really, really great to be here. I am an innovation consultant. I've, I do three, three main things, really. I work inside organisations to help them figure out what does the future look like for us and what options do we have and how can we create an environment where more of those options can show up more easily rather than them being an argument, which often innovation is inside many organisations. So there's a figuring out of the, the, the why and, and the what, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, there's looking at the how. So how are we going to switch this on? How are we going to create an environment where <clears throat> great ideas can show up more inevitably rather than trying to fit it in around the edges of the daily work. And then the third thing I do is I teach in business schools on MBAs and entrepreneurship programs. So most of my work revolves around those three areas. Okay. Well, I, I also know you've written a book, which I've recently finished called Be Less Zombie, which was really insightful. Yeah, that's right. It was kind of something I never really planned to do. And I found myself leaving client assignments, knowing that there was going to be a series of bumps in the road ahead that I wasn't invited to be part of because my project had ended with the client. And, and I wanted to leave something behind that was going to be a helpful how-to navigation aid, really. And so that, that's really where the book was born, was wanting to give people a really practical, as jargon-free as possible help that um, they could refer back to at any point in their journey. Okay, and I think it's an area both quite interested. So it, just before we came on, we were talking about the power of the questions, which you cover in the book as well. And we gave an example of some of the questions you we could ask in circumstances and why we did it before we came on, on air. So what is it about questions you think are really key to driving innovation in organisations? Well, sometimes I think one of the hardest things is to see what's missing. And, and that's where the magic is often in innovation. You're looking into your market context, you're looking into the near and far future, and you're always asking that question, what's missing? We, un we understand what our clients need today, we think, we do it. we've got a model that works today, but there's technology, there are trends that are combining and coming to us from the future that are making our near future and, and far future less certain than they are today. So understanding and trying to figure out ways of seeing what's missing are real innovation superpowers. The, tr the trouble is, and I found this often with working with product teams and innovation teams who are uh, trying to come up with new ideas. When you ask a customer or a, or a user to tell you, what would you like more of? What would you like in the future? What, you know, you see all these new products and technologies coming. What, what do you think that the future of this product should look like? It's really hard to come up with ideas and often you get lots of blank stares and shrugged shoulders. And often it's because that question is so broad. It's, it's too broad, really, uh, to answer very meaningfully. So one of the things that I really appreciate about a very well-designed question is it not only frames the, the pursuit of an answer around something meaningful to our, our, our future survival and thriving, hopefully, but it also bursts the bubble of the status quo that often is encamped around our heads without us even knowing. And you know, I liken it to a kind of, kind of corporate chloroform, which dulls us into just doing more of what we do today. 
and trying to think of anything other than what we do today that is linked to strategy moving forward is harder than we think. So a well-designed question that is aligned with and, and is calibrated to the level of disruption that we need an idea to deliver to us is, I think, one of the most powerful weapons in, a, in an innovation toolbox. I mean, obviously, because I work with coaching and sort of appreciative inquiry where a lot of the things from that is also about the, the power of the question to sort of help move somebody's thinking from one perspective to another. So, so I think some of the questions you talk about, so if you want somebody to be really disruptive, then the question has got to be about the disruption rather than mm. just iterative changes that yeah, yeah. Well, and give people the space to explore and think. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I, I think I'm a big believer that the quality of the ideas is related to the quality of the questions. And too often we ask, whether it's in a brainstorm or outside of that, or we're, tr we're trying to encourage people to pursue idea generation. We're just too general and broad in the question. And then we get disappointed with the ideas that come up. And <clears throat> you know, I've been in many sessions, I'm sure all of us have, where the, the, the leader of the workshop or the meeting is asking for ideas around a particular topic and nothing's quite landing. And we're all sort of looking at each other and thinking, well, what do you actually want? You know, what, give us an idea of what the right answer looks like. And some of that is because we haven't framed a narrow and specific enough question around the outcome that we're pursuing. Okay. And that's a bit like, as I say, the title to these webcasts is How Might We, or podcast, or is How Might We, which I think is a great uh, starter for a question when you're looking for creativity and innovation with people, because it indicates there is a potential solution out there. Yeah, that's right. And, and I get, you know, some people listening to this might think, well, you know, if you're too narrow on the question, you can limit the, the ideas and possibly that, that that can be true. And I think what I like is a question that is narrow enough to guide the idea generation, but its exploration is allowed to be as broad as it needs to be. So questions like how might we, you know, the world is your oyster. <laughs> but let's let's ask how might we with a very narrow outcome that we're pursuing yes i think when when i was looking at sort of the design of how might be questions one of the, the tips is is about getting that sort of the goldilocks moment isn't it it's, it's not too broad and not too narrow and yeah yeah just enough direction but then enough space to explore that's right yeah that's a good way of thinking about it i think yeah, so how we do that so obviously we've had covid hit us and everywhere around and so innovation is now becoming sort of the, the thing that a lot of organizations are saying we really need to do and we need to really change the way we're looking and working so what's your take on sort of the things that are happening around at the moment well it's interesting i mean it, there's certainly no lack of appetite for innovation i guess it's dressed up in different names at the moment at the same time though we're seeing this irony where innovation budgets are being cut all over the place marketing budgets are being cut learning and development budgets are being cut and our ability to do and learn different things so that we can show up in the future in a way that's relevant is in this interesting box <laughs> i don't know it's, it's i mean every organization that i talk to is is facing this and let's you know let's be honest it's very difficult who'd be a ceo right now and and be, you know it's an, an enviable task trying to figure out how on earth do we figure out what comes next and therefore what should we do and i think most of the innovation certainly that i'm seeing inside organizations inevitably is coming from a desire to survive somewhat panic driven that 
may sound unfair, but that's what I'm seeing is, is quick. If we don't do something different, we're dead. So a lot of the innovation is focusing on efficiency, even more efficiency. You know, how can we pair it right back to the bone as if we hadn't done enough of that already? But I, I completely understand that instinct. But then we're also seeing, I think, some really imaginative responses from an innovation point of view where companies are just flipping their whole business model and looking for you know, a subscription model or looking at Deliveroo and saying, how can we be more Deliveroo? And, and, you know, particularly in the service, sorry, the retail sector and restaurants and cafes, things like that. It's been, it's been really nice to see organizations being able to, to make that flip. I, get, I guess the, the bigger question for me, though, is COVID is interesting, but life will carry on at some point in the future, the, the needs that customers have, many of, you know, one of the important questions to ask in innovation is what isn't changing? And some of the fundamentals of why businesses are in business today won't change. The delivery mechanism, the how will change. And that that is an enduring issue that every organisation should always be looking at. This is our strategy. That's where we want to be in five years time. What's the gap between continuing to do what we do today and reaching that destination and not and the gap is the innovation gap that you need to fill and that never goes away there'll, there'll be covids there'll be other black swans and things that we've we've never anticipated before the job of the leadership team i think is regardless of what's going on around us we always need to be thinking in terms of stewardship for the current and the near future and the, the long-term future and having a portfolio of ideas that are in different levels of maturity, some that we can turn around very quickly and can help us make operational efficiency improvements. Others, you know, Google thinks in five, seven year timeframes. I mean, we're not all trying to be Google, but they understand that some of the bigger bets, some of the bigger shifts in technology that are coming take a little while to work on. Most of the stuff that they work on will fail, but the two or three that come through will be game changers. So for me, COVID, COVID is, is, is helping people identify some cracks in the system that probably needed looking at anyway, and we're overdue for an upgrade. But it, for me, it highlights, I hope, in many organizations, the need to, look at, to take a look at ourselves and say, we should have been better prepared for this. We should have had more in the cupboard that, to, to fall back on that we don't currently have. So I hope it's a kind of wake up call. I guess, I guess it remains to be seen. Yeah, I mean, I quite like that thing of having things in the cupboard. So even if we do, say, get something like a COVID in the future, which is inevitable at some point, we're going to get a shock that people either don't see or happens very quickly. It'll be, I just don't think we've had anything as big as this for a long, long time. Definitely not in my lifetime. And I think interesting in your book, you talked about, you say the bit that always gets uh, people excited is when you talk about experiments. So the, the ability to build experiments into your operating system sort of as the normal. Yeah, that that seems to be something that resonates with everybody. And, and I think some of that is one of the, the biggest requests of leaders that I meet is from a larger number of bolder ideas that can dig us deeper moats of competitive advantage and help us to show up more likely in the future and, you know, all of those things. And the research shows that bigger ideas, bolder ideas generally deliver more of that stuff than just focusing on a lot of incremental ideas and so the the desire is there and 
I, I meet lots of frustrated leaders who say, I don't understand my people. I tell them they have freedom to innovate. They're allowed to, you know, it's fail fast and all of this stuff. And yet nobody moves. You know, what's, what's going on? Often what's going on is that people don't have a first safe step to take. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are too high to try anything that's too different than what our current system is set up to reward. And if I do something too far out of that, you know, the stakes are high. I'm going to lose something, whether that's a potential bonus, whether it's the esteem of my colleagues, whether it's the potential of a promotion, whatever. There's lots of reasons why you wouldn't take that first step. So developing an experiment-led, a discovery-led approach to innovation, particularly around ideas that are loaded with ambiguity, is a really smart way to flush out whether we should even take a, a, a... too much of a step with this idea because most big bold ideas do fail. I mean, Google, the moonshot side of Google, Google X, they expect 99% of the ideas that they work on to fail. They're aiming high, but they know that that 1% will deliver something really special and really important. So if Google does that, and they're the masters of innovation in some respects, why should we expect anything different inside our organizations? So. What Google and Amazon and many other organizations do is they lower, uh, they make the pursuit of bolder ideas what they call the path of least resistance. So they lower the stakes massively and they'll, they'll look at the ideas that are in front of them. They'll flush out what are the biggest assumptions that we have here that could cause this idea to fail if those assumptions turn out to be wrong. And before we spend any money developing the idea, let's go and test those assumptions. So we developed tiny experiments, building here very much on Eric Reese's work in the book, The Lean Startup, and trying to find as quickly and as cheaply as possible whether this assumption is true or partly true or not true at all. And on that basis, we have some data which we can use to make some decisions to investment decisions around the idea. So it's this flip. Someone framed it really nicely for me once. He, He said to me, so what you're saying, Elvin, is, Instead of spending 50K building something, we should spend 50 quid learning something. And that, that for me is a really elegant way of talking about how to take a small first step, which isn't building a white elephant. It's trying to tease out whether actually we're on the right track here. And if we're not, can we pivot and learn our way into a different direction or should we pull a plug really quickly? So that, that means taking that first step is really quite safe. And if you really are only spending a very small amount of money doing that, there's, there's not much really at risk. So it really encourages many more people to step forward with their ideas and say, I really want to give this a go. OK, well, come back, show me what your assumptions are, design a tiny experiment, we'll have a look at it and then go for it. And in many organisations now I'm hearing it's leaders and managers saying, don't bring me, beyond, don't bring me ideas, but bring me experiments. Bring me something that's got some data behind it to show that this is more than a gut feel. There's actually something here that we should take seriously. I mean, that's interesting. So we can, because obviously a lot of people say we've got to take the risk, but the more data generated that idea is, the less risk we're then taking because we've got, we can, we can evidence it's more likely to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. And that for me is a very smart and proven way now. I mean, it's what we do in science. It's, it's, what, it's, it's the way that science is always designed and run experiments. There's hypothesis. We're testing hypothesis how do we do that as efficiently as possible so that we don't waste resources on things that turn out not to be worth exploring? So 
it's, it's, it's definitely something that isn't without precedent is that we've never necessarily transferred the approach and the learning over to the business world. Yeah, and I think the, the thing about that is also is important in news today is that, that the learning as well. So instead of just throwing like the baby out of the bathwater, it fails. It's, it's, yeah, this didn't work in the, this context, but what have we learned along this journey and what how that might be useful to somebody else? Or is this, it might just be context driven and in another three, six, nine, 12 months, it might be a better time to try this, try this out. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to somebody earlier in a, in a government department who's, looking at, at rolling this, this approach out. And they were saying to me, what we're trying to do at the moment in our organization is try and move away from the word failure because it's not a very helpful word. And what we want to do instead is to reframe what success means. And if running, ex running an experiment, testing a hypothesis, if success is only viewed as our hypothesis was right, we should proceed with this then we're never really, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're not really pushing the needle very hard or trying to find something that's really outside of today. It's not an extraordinary idea. It's not a very original idea because we can kind of predict it. So if we can enter an experiment with uh, a perspective that says learning is successful, learning that this is the wrong thing to do is as valuable and as successful as learning that this is the right thing to do, and I think that really helps us to make progress from a cultural perspective. And again, it goes back to that question, isn't it? So the, the, the framing, the language we use has a big influence on people's perception of what we're trying to do and the outputs and how we measure that. Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the one of the things I really liked in the book, and it's, I've, I think I've used it on a couple of times when I've, I've spoken to people, is the, the 3M, that metric of, mm. uh, is it 40%? Well, thirty percent of our profits got to come from products that are less than four years old. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Could you get me thirties and forties the wrong way around? Never was any good at maths. Never was any good at maths. But I love the duality of that. Says so, because to meet that metric in the future, you've got to be doing something today. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, I do think it forward focuses the organisation. I think when I've done like working with HR professionals and that, they said, "What are you talking about?" And they said, "Well, you've got to stop." talking about the now and start thinking about the future as well. So yes, we have to be operational, but we also have to do the scanning the horizon. And especially, yeah. I think with what we're doing in COVID, as you say, people are running around in that sort of panic firefighting mode uh, that makes that much more difficult for them to find that time. That's right. And I, I used to run this exercise in a workshop where I'd ask people to draw two circles. One is how much time do we spend on solving problems for the very near future or right now and, and how much do we spend on anything beyond 12 months and I, I vividly remember running this in a in a workshop where I went over you know everyone had fed back on their circles and usually it's something like 90 or 95 percent we focus on today and you know the loose changes for tomorrow and this guy said here's my today circle it's 120 percent here's my, here's my tomorrow circle it's 20 percent and that, and that sums up what's really the case in many organizations is that we are overstretched. We're, we've got overcommitted people and we're expecting them to come up, you know, pluck genius out of the air and then turn it into an action, into action in an environment that's designed to kill it. Mm. So it's, you know, setting ourselves up for success, first of all, from a time point of view and a, and a capacity and an energy point of view, I absolutely agree. It's, it's got to be a starting point. Yeah, it's, it's interesting thing. I, I just want to pick up on that is... 
because obviously I've got the, one of the leadership models or my leadership model is about creating an environment for psychological safety, which will help mm. the type of thing happen. And you mentioned the word energy and it creativity is energy. It's, it, it's energy re- produces lots of energy, but it does require energy at the same time. And it's the more tired people are, the less creative they can be. Definitely. Yeah. And sort of the stresses and what stress does to the way our brain works. So we put people under loads of stress. We put them under all this pressure and we say, oh, by the way, now you've got to solve uh, next week's biggest problem. And we've got, but you're going to be in meetings all day today. Uh, we want something off you next week. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Some of this, I, when I was writing the book, it's it'd Be Less Zombie. I, I had a bit of a crisis of confidence around the title halfway through. And I, I called the publisher and I said, I, I don't know whether people are going to really self want, be happy self-identifying as zombies. Maybe what this book is really about is be more human. It's, it's not the title because it's just too, too boring. But I think one of the things we a switch that we really need to flip inside organizations for real, if CEOs are genuine in their desire, and all the surveys show this every year, it's, there's always something there about creativity or curiosity or originality in their top three, we must most, you know, must haves. Then we need to create an environment where people can, can do their best work as human beings and all of the things that you've just listed have been proven time and time again by science that if you want people to be imaginative creative original you have to create the environment where they can do that and that's low stress energized you know high challenge low stress and and if you want to get into it sleep patterns the food that helps there's all sorts of levers we can pull to increase the chances that our people will be really creative but we seem to think that we can shortcut that put people in a brainstorm room with some flip charts and and sticky notes and somehow expect automatic genius and we need to really stop kidding ourselves and get serious about how do we resource innovation for human beings in also in a collective environment because the, the dynamics play play with play games with how we show up as well and at the moment i i think most organizations pay lip service to it and you know we're just too busy just get real just get on with it well i think you get really what what you invest in it ultimately yeah it's one of the i think it was one of those cartoons isn't it there's a guys with the the wheel that's square and the guy says look what i'm making and thinking of doing which is the round wheel said no we can't look at it we're far too busy now (laughs) yes i've seen that They're so busy trying to get this thing that's not quite working. Yeah. Work when somebody over there said, I've got this great idea. It's going to make <laughs> life easier. Yeah, we haven't got time to look at that now. So, yeah, yeah. Again, I think that's one of the things we need to do. And I, I, it goes back to that thing about the duality, isn't it? Can How can we create an environment where we're, we're worried about today, obviously, because it has to survive to pay for tomorrow. But we've got to look at what's what it's going to pay for tomorrow and then what's going to pay for the tomorrow after that and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And how we can. And I think in your book, it talks about it's, it's being purposeful with creating yeah. but doing it with intent mm. so create not being creative for creative sake because you don't want loads of ideas coming up that aren't actually going to help you go where you want to go or what you're trying to achieve or link to any benefit because that's a that's a waste of energy but having it focused in a way but giving people that space to do it and making the right environment for those that creative genius because we are all creative geniuses i believe yeah yeah, I, I believe you're right. And, and yet we typically design organizations to prevent that from showing up. And of course, you know, everyone says execution is everything. And that's true. And lots of ideas fall down because we fail to turn them into action. But for me, that's, that's part of the end-to-end innovation process. But everybody, I, I get, I, I have to bite my tongue when people tell me they're not creative. 
And I think some of that is down to how we're defining innovation and creativity. And I, I try as quickly, quickly as I can to help people see that whatever their strengths are, they show up somewhere in the innovation process, whether you're the cynic or whether you're the big picture thinker or whether you're the person that can see how to turn that into something practical. We've all, we've all been employed inside an organization to bring some value. And usually, I mean, always, I've never met anybody who, who you can't neatly place at one part of the innovation process where they would add exceptional value. Perhaps not every stage, but I don't think anybody really adds the best value at every stage. But we kind of, when we're talking about creative thinking, pigeonhole people, if you're, if you're not the big visionary thinker who's coming up with truly original ideas, then you can't do innovation or creativity. Well, that's, it's rubbish. It's not true at all. It's, it really is a cliche, but it is a team sport. So helping people break that myth over their own lives and help them recognize that they do have value to bring is, is really important, I think. Well, yeah, I think, as you said, that's humanizing it, isn't it? Saying we are all different, but we can all bring something to the table. Yeah. Value to this process. And I think it was like even uh, Disney and his creative processes, recognizing that innovation or creative process, there are different stages within that um, where you've got to be creative, you've got to be a bit, a bit of a realist, and you've got to be a critic as well. Yeah, yeah, that's stages right. to test the as you say when you talk about those assumptions, an idea is great, but we need to test the ideas or the assumptions it's built on for the validity within the reality in which we're in. Yeah, yeah, will it work? And I think there was some research done, and I can't remember the guy's name about uh, being creative geniuses for NASA, where they did a longevity test and did it with some five-year-olds, and uh, nine, I think like ninety-seven percent of the kids passed at creative genius, but by <laughs> the time they got up to fourteen, it was about seventeen percent. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and I think, and one of the things is we're always being taught there is an answer, like the one answer that, as you say, the silver bullet we're always looking for, rather than saying, let's look at different multiple ways of achieving what we're trying to achieve. And let's, let's open that curiosity and maintain it. It's funny, isn't it? Because, as you, you know, you're, you do a lot of coaching. And one of the things you do in coaching is ask people, what other options do you have if they're so focused on, on one? And it's the same with, I think with creativity in this context as well as I like, I like to think that creativity needs to show up in many contexts. It's, it's how do we interpret the insights and the research that we've got? Do we look at them long enough and think deeply enough about them and wonder where they might go? Do we spend enough time designing questions that are so tantalizing to answer that people can't wait to get stuck in? Do we, you know, we might spend a bit more time with idea generation. <clears throat> what about spending time designing the most incredible experiments that deliver so much learning really quickly rather than just, you know, doing half the job and coming up with something that's still actually quite expensive and going to take quite a long time. So creativity and coming up with options in lots of different contexts at, at pace where it's needed, I think is massively under-resourced really. And the focus isn't there. I mean, I spoke to a company once and they said, oh, we want to create an innovation center. And I said, well, we've got an innovation thing at the moment. I said, what do you do? We've got an email system. I said, okay. Yeah. And they said, right, how many people email? And they went, no, we don't get many. I said, well, it's not really working, is it? So having a process in itself, say necessarily isn't enough it's about what backs that up and then how do people engage in that system and what value do they add in it and how do we manage those ideas in a, in a way that's constructive for people yeah yeah and i did some research a little while ago into 
what are the biggest blockers of, of innovation inside your organization? And it was, I don't know, 25 or 30 different organizations. In the top five, for most people, the, the biggest issue was there's no process. Even if I have an idea, I don't really know what to do with it next, particularly if it's slightly different from what we do today. And it doesn't have a neat fit with a team or a budget. It just gets lost to, you know, in the cracks because there's nowhere to, to go and place it where it can actually be explored and tested and, and developed. So having, and it doesn't have to be a complex process, having something can make a really big difference quite quickly in, in many contexts. I think you're probably, and what might happen, I think, is if you open it up to a lot of people to come up with ideas, I, I think, and this is just guess, and obviously your experience, you may say it's off the mark or closer, you may find that quite a lot of people kind of thinking about the same sort of thing about how the where the improvements or something they can see yeah would happen yes i think that's quite often right and and often often i i experience well it depends on the organization if it's an organization where the manager always has to have the right answer and we're all just waiting for either that manager to steal your idea or to for them to present their own idea which they're going to go off and run with anyway then that's one dynamic but in organizations that are genuinely interested in getting the best insight possible into their idea generation processes, often the frontline staff can tell you immediately the, the things that matter most and have already thought up solutions that might not be 100% you know, watertight, but are a long way down the line of something that could be really practical and, and, and turn on. I'd say that that's true, certainly for incremental operational ideas. I think the more we go into conceptual abstract, moving more into the future, and you're trying to design different kind of futures and different ways of technology coming together, that's less true. But I think for you know, 80, 90% of the, the innovation that we do day to day, the front line already have the answers. <laughs> We're just not asking them. No, and get if you want a system to change, get the system involved in the change as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because you mentioned in the book as well, when you build your alliance uh, yeah. to help you with ideas, is get the people who are involved who are going to sort of help you with this idea or help you test this idea. Because I think people would love to, if you if you had a meeting with somebody and said, oh, do you want to fancy grabbing a coffee? I've got an idea, I just want to run it past you. I think I, I, there's very few people who would say no. No, you're right. People love working with ideas. I often find that if if we, you know, an organisation decides they're going to run a Dragon's Den competition and anyone can pitch and you've got to work in a team. And so I've run lots of these things where you, you work with the team on their idea, you get them for a day and you run them through some tools and you break their ideas apart, put them back together again and they, they leave feeling really good about something they can go away and test. And quite often people say to me, this has been a really great workshop, you know, learned loads of stuff. But the thing that I really, really have been reminded of today is why I got into this business in the first place. Because we're talking about the customer, we're talking about all of the issues that I'm really interested in. And somehow that becomes distant in the day job, which it really shouldn't be. So there's, there's something in, in what you say, I think, where people love exploring ideas and it's one of the things I think is a free side benefit of having a culture where innovation is, is higher on the agenda is that you do get more engaged people because they're problem solving, they're exploring things, they're, they're asking questions that generally the day job doesn't have time to ask. And it's fun and, and it stretches your brain and it's challenging. So 
there's there's lots of reasons to pursue it, not least that it, it gives people a real sense of engagement with their work. Oh, I mean, that goes back to the sort of purpose stuff of Simon Cernek and why and uh, yeah. Daniel Pink and motivate around a purpose or the opportunity to make a difference or become better at something that counts and all that generated in that whole the way we work with them i don't think i've ever had a discussion with people where i've talked about creativity or innovation where people close down yeah Um, i don't they're sometimes the most energizing discussions you've ever had with people just to play with that idea and once you create i think that the thing i'll go back to is creating that space where people as you say you mentioned the people realize they are creative maybe not they might they're not be a picasso or they can't play instruments and i can do neither of those but if you can if you can imagine something that's not here then you're creative because you're making something up in your brain if i say look at this color what that wall looked like if it was painted blue and they'd have to think about that so yeah i can see that i said okay you're creative then because you've now changed that to a blue wall in your mind you've created something new so it doesn't have to be huge you don't have to be artistic it's just about that ability to thing and i think and also being able to question. So if you have an organization that you say allows people to have that space where failure isn't the language we use, it's about learning, encouraging people to take those low risk options, you say, with the experiments. And I think it was Google X as well, or they say they, they, they celebrate shutting down of projects that don't work. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think yeah, that's, that's something that happens in a few companies. They have a, like a memorial service for the idea where, they celebrate the learning, they celebrate the, the courageous endeavour of the team. And it's all good. You know, we, we, we all thought at one point in time that this was going to be this. But actually, as we went along the journey, we recognised that we were wrong. And that's OK, because we were in discovery mode. We weren't necessarily even expected to find the right answer. But you, you reward people for what can otherwise be something that creates shame. And, and that's the last thing you, that you want if you're trying to create an environment where people are proactively stepping into discovery mode, stepping into potential failure, if that's what we want to call it. So, so again, it's being more human. It's recognizing that someone put their neck on the block here for, for all of our sake. And it didn't really work out as shown as, as we thought, but let's, let's honor that. Let's respect what they tried to do. And in, in that kind of environment, you can't help but feel good about the, and again, it's about what this, this uh, person said to me earlier from the government, it's, it's about how do we frame success? And if success has to be, it worked as we expected it to, then we're gonna have a very low ceiling on the out- outputs of innovation. Mm. Yeah, because even if you say, what unexpected outcomes did we get from this? So. That could be another way of reframing that question about, and then that also look, rather than just what didn't work, but also what did we learn that we weren't, we didn't, weren't expecting? It could be a positive as well. Yeah. Learn what would we never have learned had we not done this is a really great question. And it's sort of encouragement. Well, we learned this, this, and this. Okay. With that no knowledge, how can we apply that into the business case? Are there any other projects that this would be useful for? Yeah. You see, as that, the, the, the outcome is, the, is, is as I say, the knowledge that, or the learning comes from that is a resource then that's open to the organization to use. Yeah, absolutely. And, and be applied across other areas. Because I think what they help that do is companies and, or people to say, because I learned something in the context of A, doesn't mean that learning isn't valuable, uh, viable in B, C, and D. Because I think we do that as people as well, don't we? We learn, yeah. we learn a skill to do something. 
and then we say well i've only learned that there and i i, I need to but no that's a skill you've got and how can you apply that skill in a different context it's a really good point actually and i used to be part of a team that was running a like an innovation leadership development program for sony music and it was a really great program and we'd have 60 or 70 people a year and they'd have a, a week in london and there was a boot camp and they had different things going on across the year but they basically they were out there to learn how to do this exploratory innovation and one of the first things we said at the end of the boot camp week was before you get too invested in this idea go and see if someone else is already doing it and very very often they'd come back slightly disappointed which is why we asked them to come up with more than one idea that it was already being done elsewhere and they've been working on it for maybe a couple of years. And there are so many unjoined dots inside organizations. So knowledge management, I think, is a, is a big parallel part of the innovation space that is so poorly invested in because it's quite hard <laughs> to be tracking. I think it's easier than it used to be, but tracking what's going on and what stage it's at around the organization and then being... Also, if, if you're in love with your idea and you find out someone else is already doing it, well, is it the idea you're in love with or, or should it be the problem you're trying to solve? And that's often the flip that I try and help people make because then if your idea does fail or you do find somebody else is doing it and actually they've, they've done it better even than you were thinking, you don't care because what you're really interested in is solving the problem rather than being the hero that found the idea. Of course, that's nice if that's part of the, of the journey, but... There's so many unjoined dots that ends up also with um, massive duplication projects around us in, inside organisations that, again, it's quite demoralising when you find out that someone's, someone else or two or three other teams are working on the same thing that you're trying to solve and probably others are, are, are thinking the same thing. It goes back to your point earlier, you know, we all know the problems that we need to solve. Maybe we should just ask one another. Yeah, have a conversation. I mean, even if a team did their own little how might we sessions every week okay what's the biggest challenge we want to solve this week let's put it out there okay, how might we do this just have a just have a, just have a brainstorming session or a, a thing and see if we can prototype something yeah like that. yeah yeah that's so simple it's a what a 40 minute conversation you could have every week yeah and i think that's where sort of where i work with appreciative inquiry like especially companies coming back or teams coming back now and so it's not a huge change you're asking them to do but you might ask him how can we now reconnect as a team and move forwards after covid because mm. the whole work's different but if you ask every team that then what you're doing is allowing the whole team every team to come up with its solution that, that works for it rather than having yeah. a top-down approach that will yeah yeah well I've, I've just put together a workshop to help teams do just that because it's it's something we should be doing all the time and it's one of those when we have the conversation we look at each other at the end of it and say why aren't we doing this more often this has been the best conversation we've had for ages because we've realized we need to stop doing this so that we can start doing this and actually we can start going home on time, <laughs> which is often it's, it's the discipline of stopping is one of the best things we can do to be more productive, I think. Less speed, more haste. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and taking a step back because it again goes back to what we're like. And so if you're working really hard and you're, and you're, and you're sort of full pelt all the time, your productivity is poor anyway. So you're putting your, your, I can't remember the name of that graph. Is it the, the, the amount of the amount of returns for the amount of investment just hits that negative? Yeah, loads, loads of effort in for very little return on investment and sort of yeah. like your time and your energy. So say just taking a 10 minute, 15, 20 minute break and using it for something that's a little bit more constructive re-energizes you to then go back into what you're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
I've, I'm, the amount of times I've had to people and they've had an energy a, a session, they just come out all bouncing. And I think that comes back to what you're saying. It's great having these these sessions and people come up with loads of ideas and people come up all energized about how we can make this a great place to work. You've got to do something with some of them. Yeah, and again, it comes back to your point earlier about time. Who's got time to do this? And, and one of the things that I usually try and do at the end of a, an innovation training time is you know, say to people, okay, so who's ready to go innovate? And most people are pretty motivated because we've given them some tools where they feel like they can really go back to their team to make a difference. Okay, who's got time to innovate? And you can feel the air leaving the balloon and you've got to be careful it doesn't get too saggy because <laughs> the reality is we're, you know, most of us are overstretched and we'd, we'd love to be doing more innovation, but there's no time. So the, the first thing, the last thing I, I ask people to do is I, I run an exercise with them to help them find between 10 and 20% of their week, which if they wanted to, they can make some different choices about. And most people are, are able to do that. They can find half a day at least a week by thinking differently about meetings and email particularly. And if you're really motivated to do innovation, you can, you can contract with yourself and your team around creating time to do that. Unless you do that, unless the organization is helping you do that, then... <laughs> we're always going to be fitting in innovation when the kids are in bed and you know, you're going to be tired and worn out and that's going to affect your motivation. So that's just why I think trying to get a bit more of a realistic grip on designing human friendly organizations, if we want to show up in the future is absolutely crucial. And I think that definitely goes I think where organizations need to go in my view, because with then innovation coming in and technology coming in, the bit that makes us human is the bit that we need to concentrate on. Mm. And the, the, the human aspect of it is our relationships, our ability to build relationships with clients, customers internally, create that experience, define that purpose that the organization can get well known for, but then also to be creative, to be innovative. That's the bit machines don't do, but it's the bit that we, we can as human beings. So create an environment that allows us to be humans to enable that to happen. Yeah, yeah. There's no point in competing with computers. We'll never win. No, it's it's about continually looking at who does what best. Mm. And you know, I, was, I was listening to something the other day about the current state of AI, and you know it's moving at a pace, but there's still a lot of people thinking we're a long way off being able to really allow or expect an AI to accurately make choices, you know, be intuitive work on things like gut feeling things that are deeply human and perhaps hard to predict i don't know i think we've got i think we're going to be around for a little while with with some purpose in the workplace i hope so <laughs> i hope so we'll have some, we, we, one of those i robot type moments coming on isn't it everyone's <laughs> not doing a lot and everyone's going there we go let them in terminator is on its way i mean that's what yeah. here isn't it and i think there's lots of ethics as soon when you start bringing ai into this sort of this 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 process mm. I mean, that's that, that's a whole new ball game about business ethics and I, you know i'm really interested with what's happening with covid at the moment it's slightly off topic but that's right the speed of developing a vaccine and you know this desire to get it out quickly and yet this has always taken 10 years before and there are some ethical blur, blurry ethically blurry lines for me in that whole process i wonder if someone there was another crisis that ai could somehow perhaps solve and we for, for expediency decided that let's rush this through 
you wonder whether there might be some bumps in the road ahead for that as well. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to be a, you know, a doomer and gloomer, but the I think like inside organisations, values on a poster on the wall, they're, you know, they're great. And you know, these are the ones that we ascribe to. When you find out what's really going on on what basis decisions are really made, is it really the values? I don't know. And I, I just, I just sometimes I'm a, a little bit doubtful that the, the, the the place that ethics needs to hold in some of these things will really show up if the flame is turned up high enough. I don't know. It's 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 up for debate, I guess. I don't think what it is. There's the question is the thing is that principles don't pay bills. <laughs> yeah, and, that's it. What what you said. Yeah, principles don't. So, at what point do you stand to ethics, and what points do you say you walk away from a deal? Mm. And I think everyone has that sort of where they are. But I then think what's, what's down to that is what are the values you're holding on to and how dear are they to an organisation or to as an individual? And I think that will hugely influence that choice. Yeah, and I mean, the reality is, even though we're joking about that, you can point to organisations where they really do look at their values and they, they live them out. You look at organisations like Patagonia, where they've been doing this for years. Their whole business is founded upon doing the right thing. And I think that does have a more enduring quality, but I guess when it comes to technology and uh, legislation and who's making decisions about some of these things, then that's perhaps a, a wobblier area potentially. I think as the, the context of being in, like, imagine with the what's going on with the pandemic now and this vaccine, you've got however many people around the world working on a vaccine, and you know, I think is that a good resource or are we are we spreading our our ideas and in, into too too thin an area? Have we just spread the the, uh, the net really wide and hoping one of them will hit like mm. spaghetti at the wall and how much is it is data driven ideas are coming up but also say some possibly the ethics but it's driven by a lot and it's driven by fear but driven by needing to be seen to be done so, doing something perception yeah. of that the, the the risk to the health of of everyone and everything else so i just think it's it's a whole different ball game and it, it can create dilemmas that people perhaps haven't had to experience before mm. yeah and I think that's that's one of the things that I think where where the values become clear is when we hit a dilemma. Mm. They're easy when everything's going well, but when you've got a real tough decision to make, and then I think that's when we sort of test the values that hold dear to us as an organisation and all individuals. Yeah, and I yeah. totally agree. With that. I think most companies' values are on the wall when they don't actually mean anything within the organisation. Mm. They might like them to, and interestingly enough, there is a. The best way to put values in, I think, in an organization is through the conversations that happen in the company. Yeah. Encourage encourage conversations around the values and what they mean. Mm. So it's then lived by, talked about, becomes part of the part of the fabric of the company. And creating that, I think, is one of the best ways of embedding values into an organization. Yeah, I think that's right. And and making it very even down at a team level, team level, I know that this the Spotify model of tribes and squads and and everything that they have at the beginning of a, of, a, of, a, of a project the team sits and talks about okay how do we get from a to b what are we going to need from one another and i think there's a real opportunity there in any organization to have that kind of conversation and say how are we going to show up for one another what you know where, where would we call something what does trust look like and get really granular about it in you know different milestones different needles we need to move what might that need to look like? And certainly the, the teams that I've worked with where that's happened, people have a conversation that they've really never had before, but it's been really rewarding and meaningful. And actually it's very practical. It's not airy-fairy and, and woolly and 
HR, <laughs> some people might say, this is, this is, this is the stuff that's going to actually get the job done because we've got high levels of trust. So we can make decisions knowing that each one of us is going to keep the other safe mm-hmm. around these parameters. So anyway, moving into your area of expertise now. No, that's fine. Well, I wouldn't say expertise there. I'm fascinated by it. But yes, I, it's, and it goes back to what you were saying, I think right at the beginning was sort of the values of questions. If you want these conversations around innovation, around how we can work together, you, you talk about, I think in the book, you talk about an innovation charter, which is about how you can get mm. sort of clarity on the direction of innovation we need and sort of the dependables. And then you can look at what needs to be true. But I love that question, by the way. What needs to be yeah, true? Yeah, me too. It's not mine. It's Richard McGrath. Yeah. It's such a cool question. What needs to be true for that to happen opens up all the things. And then you can end up, how might we deliver that? Then you can start working on innovation, but it's all links and people can see that linkage, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you can do that with a team as well, with the team charter. So what's our purpose as a team? Why do we exist as a team? Not what do we do, but why do we exist? What's our purpose within the organization? Even if you talk about even a more uh, bureaucratic company that hasn't got a lot of flexibility in that sort of adaptability yet. If you go into like HR or you go into a HR department and say, right, what's our purpose? And you say, yeah. why is it important for the organization that we exist? I like that question, by the way, as well. Yeah. And then you get people really talking about what, the, what, what it is they do. And then they say, okay, to deliver that, how do we need to act? But what do we need to deliver? How are we going to measure that? And how are we going to act to ensure that happens? Yeah, yeah. I think you've got, you've got a purpose, metrics, and behavior framework delivered in a matter of three or four conversations. Yeah, definitely. Which I think is, that's where I think we can go. And I get a lot with what you're talking about as well, with the, the, the little the people working together, doing these experiments, working together across cult, across functions and sort of having those clarity of conversations at the beginning. I think it's really important to help people sort of connect. How can we build a community around a common purpose? Yeah, and, and keep that conversation alive. So it's not just a one-off that we had two years ago yeah. because that rapidly ages. As it does. It, again, it seems a tick box exercise. Okay, we've done that. We've done yeah. that. Oof, we've done the mission. Oof, we've done trust. Yeah, That's the yeah. thing. I think it gets like that, doesn't it? It gets like, in, uh, HR, I've got another initiative or this is another initiative. And I think I saw someone from Simon Cernak. He said, and it's intensity versus consistency. Yeah. Be consistent intense occasionally but be consistent yeah yeah i i remember there was uh, a guy that was just he, he was on the board at a big electronics company that we were, i was doing some work for when i used to work for a consultancy called dpa and he did the egon zender that the leadership development profiling people they anyway he did their test and basically broke it i'd never seen anyone like him before he was off the scale on all the dimensions of, of high performing leadership and uh, so once, I can't remember, it was me or my colleague said to, said to him, what's the one thing, there's always one thing, isn't there? What's the one thing that you do that you think makes the biggest difference that, that allows such high performance to come from the stuff that you do? And he said, the Friday morning meeting. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you always have it. You always show up. Everyone comes. They know what they're going to deliver. They know what they're expected to do there. We have a great conversation. We move on. It's a consistent point in time that keeps everything on track. I thought, that's really boring, but really good. <laughs> and that it's that consistent. Everyone that are going to have my stuff done by Friday because, you know, yep. you have to. That's what we're there. That's what we're here, here to deliver. And he would just build teams that were very 
fluid and able to you know turn on a dime and deliver deliver things that seemed impossible he was always given the impossible jobs and he said consistency is right at the heart of it and i think again we go back to that purpose and you you they they would probably we could dissect i don't know this guy but you do they, he gave him freedom to deliver as long as on friday they were there yeah 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 do what you need to do but be friday have results for us and be willing to share that with other people boom, 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 boom. and and then that so to me that's about that's the metric but the people have got we're not telling people what to do or how to do we're telling people what to do and then leaving them to work out the how that works best for them yeah that's right and gives them that 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 flexibility and i think that's one of the things about leadership effective leadership is giving control back to people that's that's absolutely right yeah and and doing that but it's quite interesting to say about the friday meeting i would imagine if you said to somebody what's the least important thing in your life they would probably say <laughs> friday morning meeting. <laughs> the meeting in of itself just yeah it's how it's done exactly yeah it's how yeah. it's done and not stealing your thunder because i know we've been on for nearly an hour i think we could you could set a challenge of people listening to this if what an experiment what would happen if i reduced all my one hour meetings to 45 minutes well that's one of the questions i say to people why an hour you know if you added up the number of one hour meetings that you have and you experimented with 10 minute meetings, 20 minute meetings, just try some stuff out and see what sticks. Of course, a 10 minute meeting isn't going to work for everything, but actually some meetings are better because they're 10 minutes. Mm. And it's, it's working back from set yourself a target, even if it's just half an hour a week to do something different, explore something, read something, learn something, run something, give yourself some time to do that you defend and work back from that again the question what needs to be true in order for me to have half an hour a week that i don't currently have okay I'm, there's those three meetings there i'm just going to shave off 15 minutes and see what happens and it it's a, it's about being deliberate and exploratory about the way that we currently allow work to happen and often we're victims to meetings we're victims to email i had this horrific story the other day sorry this has been my last last point work at a big, I won't say, a large organization in the UK that you'd know. And they were telling me that the shift to remote working for engineers was proving to be quite difficult. And it wasn't that the work was difficult. It was they'd never had to deal with Zoom before and how to schedule meetings in, in certain ways. And they said they were getting reports of lots of people saying, I don't have time to go to the toilet during the week. I don't have time to eat. And their health was being massively compromised. Now, what they would—they were allowing themselves. Just they—I don't genuinely. I think it hadn't occurred to them. You can say no to some meetings, or you can say, "Yeah, I can stay for fifty minutes, but then I need ten minutes to prepare for the next meeting." That kind of way of working hadn't occurred to them. So that there's something in this for me, which is: to what extent am I a victim of what comes at me? And am I going to start blocking out time? Am I going to start saying no to something? Am I going to start saying yes, but under certain circumstances and actually take hold of the thing that is most valuable to us, which is the time, which we also don't have enough of. So I think that's easiest when it's a team discussion because it's hard to do on your own sometimes because you can look like um, somebody who isn't a team player if you're, if you're out there doing this on your own as a maverick. But no one, I've, I've never met anyone who, who said, I've just got too much time on my hands. I don't know what to do with my time. It's, it's not a problem. So making, and this is the thing that I, I say to most teams, before you get too carried away trying to do new stuff, innovate yourselves, innovate the way that you work to create the capacity and the energy that you're going to need to then go and do the cool stuff. 
And that's not a long, difficult conversation. You can probably nail it in half a day about things you're going to do differently or at least experiment differently to mm. create time and energy to do the stuff the future needs us to do, but the organization isn't necessarily yet rewarding us for doing that. Yeah, and there's another we could go on about the reward structure, which is usually oh, yeah. we could that could be we could go on all day for that. But it reminds me while I'm doing coaching with somebody, we, we gave him the nickname lastminute.com. He wasn't from the UK, it was when I was in the Middle East. And I said that's your nickname because he, he was always finishing just by basically on deadline. And yeah. at the end of the week, we had him with uh, six weeks, I think he was on this program in the last coaching session. He said, can I have a question? Can I ask him for a request? I said, of course you can. He said, can I be called lasthour.com now, please? <laughs> <laughs> because he managed to sort himself out. And it was again, oh, about asking those questions about how he was working himself, what he got into those practices a bit. I really like that thing about the chloroform, how he got into these practices of working. He thought were normal and he was just, it just seemed he was busier and busier and busier. And it was just basically, how can I rearrange how I work and do things slightly differently? And, and how much that generated, did you say, nearly a full working day for him every week Yeah, in extra yeah. time. He was like, he was sitting at the end of shift sitting there going, oh, I'm, I'm ready to go home now. I'm, I'm, I'm everything's tied, done, dusted, handovers ready ready to rock and roll when he worked in a high pressure fast moving operational environment yeah just by changing some things over those six weeks we were with him and a few tips from coaching he said mm. amazing amazing he goes home with family he's, he's not stressed he's got spends more time with the kids da, 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 da. so again yeah. i think you think about those knock-on effects as well of having a a much better less stressed and enjoyable work life about what it does to you outside of work as well yeah absolutely I think that's, again, humanizing the workplace, which is uh, one of the guys I follow on LinkedIn um, is massively about. And it's not, it's, it's not fluffy. It makes business sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've got that. So and it was lovely speaking to you again, Elvin, this, this afternoon or today. Or whenever. Yeah, likewise. Really good. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And then I suppose we've got to think of a name for this thing now, haven't we? Yes. What about... What about I mean, a lot of what we've talked about is dealing in reality. What about innovation for realists? All right. How might we innovate for realists? I like that. That's it. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Innovate for the Realists with Elvin Turner. Thank you.